Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm the director of ECFR and I'm joining you once again from self-isolation in a very cold London But I am bringing you an all-star cast from different corners of the European political space to talk about the future of euro bonds and corona bonds and some of the big internal schisms around economic issues which have emerged since the crisis began. To help us make sense of this debate, we are joined from Brussels by Gundram Wolf, who's the director of Bruegel, from Madrid by José Ignacio Torreblanca, who's the head of our Madrid office and senior policy fellow at ECFR, and from Berlin by Jonathan Hackenbrosch, who has been talking to a lot of the political figures in Germany about what lay behind the schisms at last week's European Council meeting. So, Guntram, you were practically at the council meeting, given that you're based in Brussels. Why don't you tell us what happened, why it was so shocking to many people to, to see these sort of divisions take place and, and what is at stake? And then we can hear from, from Nacho about how it was seen in, in Spain, because obviously the Spanish prime minister was what was one of the central figures in the debate. And, and Jonathan can tell us about the background in Berlin. Well, thanks, Mark, for having me. I mean, perhaps the first point to make is that, of course, the uh, this was a, a virtual European council meeting. So it didn't really happen in Brussels. It happened somewhere in the cloud. So we were all equally close to it, which is a sort of a very different format and also gives rise to different dynamic, I would suppose. Perhaps before I, I talk about the sort of the divisions, let me just remind our readers and listeners that we face a massive economic crisis, which will require a massive fiscal response. And this fiscal response is in our own uh, self-interest. And it's in our interest that everybody does actually a massive fiscal response because because without that fiscal response, we will see a lot of bankruptcies and long-term damage to our GDP, which will actually be harmful to every individual country that does an insufficient response, but also to all trading partners. So we need significant fiscal response. And if you look at what, what you're seeing, many countries don't respond sufficiently, including Italy and perhaps to some extent also Spain, where the fiscal response still looks relatively small compared compared to what Germany, for example, has announced. Now, why is the fiscal response so weak? Well, basically because um, there is a fear that financial markets uh, will start getting nervous about uh, debt issuance in those countries. And so this is where the whole debate of how much solidarity do we need uh, really kicks in. And uh, I think uh, the consensus among many, many economists, most economists, I would say, is that letting only the European Central Bank do the job of control spreads and making sure that uh, countries can fund themselves in the market is actually quite dangerous. It's dangerous because there may be legal challenges and it's also dangerous because there may be political challenges. So really what we are looking for is some sort of a European joint declaration, joint response where heads of state and government agree to give fiscal support to each other to share the risk, the interest rate risk in particular, and make sure that all countries can actually have a major fiscal stimulus. And it is this really what was missing at the European Council. There was an endorsement of the ECB, which is actually very positive, but there was no agreement on sharing the burden of this uh, one of 
major crisis, which has lots of externalities across borders. And I think that's a big disappointment. And the divisions are north-south. Um, they are also, of course, between uh, countries in the north. I think the Dutch position was particularly harsh. The German position, I think, which was much more uh, nuanced than the Dutch one. And I think what we've seen since the last European Council is actually quite a bit of rowing back. The Dutch have almost apologized uh, for their hard-nosed uh, position. And so I think there's a lot of movement um, in this debate. And I wouldn't actually exclude um, at some stage that we will see a deal. So Nacho, the Spanish debate about this was pretty brutal. You shared some of the articles which appeared in the Spanish press where transcripts were leaked. Do you want to talk a bit about both how Sanchez is framing it in, in Spain and also how people in Spain and also in other kind of Southern European countries read what happened at the European Council? Well, I think it was a bit of a dramatic moment because it coincided and people outside Spain may not be fully aware of this, as, as in the case of in, in Italy, that uh, both governments were going, I mean, in Italy and in Spain, they were the worst of the moment, you know, with the feeling that they were very loose, very rapidly losing control, of, uh, of course, of the sanitary situation, being totally overwhelmed by it. And then... Seeing that the, the extent of the freeze that they they would have to to impose on on the economy would be brutal, both in in, in the intensity but also in in time, and that there would not be fiscal resources enough, neither to in the short term to compensate those who are being sent home and losing their their, their income, nor uh, in the medium term in order to kind of kickstart the economy and, and and bring it back into into order. So so the calculations which the government made of a huge and massive public expenditure in order to, to compensate those who are losing their jobs and, and, and SMEs, which uh, would be forced to shut down, were very, very dramatic. And, and the government was felt like seats. And so, so this is why I think uh, what happened at the European Council is that two member states came into it with a kind of a war room and siege mentality in, in a kind of an existential mode and, and, and we're not uh, received or we're not able to, uh, to meet other partners who, who understood that. And then I think probably it was both parties' fault in, um, in a sense, I would say, that uh, Spain and Italy should have had to anticipate a bit more what you know, the reaction was going to, to be like, uh, that maybe the minute you put euro bonds or corona bonds in the table, the discussion is blocked. So, so maybe um, we have all started in the wrong foot here when, in fact, when you look at what the ECB did, it took very little for the ECB to recognize the situation and start working in the right direction. But I, I probably we've hit not only the coronavirus, but also kind of an iceberg with these euro bonds. And we are kind of stuck there now. And I think it's very important that everyone brings kind of motions down for, for a while and sit sits down actually to try and see how to fix the situation, how to find the instruments in the budget, in, in, in ECM, in, in many, in all the places across the EU budgets and EU policies in order to help with this. But it cannot be a question of yes or, or no life of death only about corona bonds. But do you think that's where they are? Because, I mean, you know, what Angela Merkel was saying is that there's loads of money here through the ESM, through the IB. It's just the idea of mutualization of debt, which was toxic. But also conditionality and macroeconomic conditionality. Countries like Spain and Italy saw in the past how conditionality to rescue the financial sector 
went into very small, it agrees, by the way, also, you know, very small details of uh, uh, labor market reform, rents, uh, lots and lots of things which were uh, marginal for, for those purposes. But then like a huge macroeconomic conditionality came in. And I think both governments in Spain and Italy, they, 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 they know, of course, that there will be some conditionality because of, at the end is money that you have to return. But they were very scared, and I think this was Italy that was leading here, that no government will survive at this point a kind of macroeconomic conditionality, which will in practical terms mean that the government or governance is put under control of, uh, of, of, of someone else, precisely when you need state and emergency powers telling the citizens that they are in control, then that control is removed because you are under a kind of another bailout or whatever conditionality black men uh, people or uh, technocrats coming back into the country to tell you how to run things in a moment of emergency. And in Italy, because your skepticism is already out of the, of the genius, it's out of the bottle and it's very difficult to put back, uh, this is very, very, very worrying. In Spain, it's not the case, I'd say, because uh, um, the main political parties are still largely pro-European. Jonathan, how much... Are Germans worried about the perception of German policy in other member states, particularly in the South? I mean, because this is not the first time that Southern Europeans have felt like they were being betrayed by Germany. Even since the beginning of the coronavirus, this is kind of round three already, because first of all, you had the export controls on personal protective equipment. Then you had the, the initial reaction of the ECB. And now this kind of big no to Corona bronze. Yeah, Mark, I think the answer is probably not concerned enough about perceptions in the South, but concerns are in Berlin are more about this discussion and about having to think about Eurobonds again, even though most people, especially on the conservative and, and liberal side, thought that was a discussion of the past. And so the concern is more about that. Uh, you know, one person we, we talked to here said, if we now give up on all the efforts of consolidation um, and of making Europe more competitive, then it was all for nothing. So that is very much the attitude in, in, in parts of the city. And from the Berlin perspective, it's really the same analysis as, uh, as Nacho's, actually. So it's hard to see the chancellor turning around on the, on the subject, and it's hard to see Eurobonds something that can be easily done from a German perspective. And remember, there's not, the, not just the Germans, but also the Dutch and the Austrians and the Finns. And so the impression one gets sitting here is, and trying to be as neutral as possible, is that, you know, there's two moralisms that oppose each other. And the Southern moralism about, uh, you know, mor and morale of this is the moment where we need to show European solidarity. And this is the moment where when, when would we do it, if not now, there's people dying. And the Northern one that you do here as well here is, well, this is exactly why we thought austerity was so important and, 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 you know, saving money for bad times. And now we need the fiscal power. So we were right all along. And my sense is that the discussion doesn't get us anywhere, uh, really. So may maybe I should first say, uh, I think if it was if we were talking about some something different, not Eurobonds in a different way, un helping helping through investments, through the ESM, through regional development banks, through other uh, measures, I think the, the discussion would already be a different one. And I think there's two uh, ways of arguing that actually would work here as well, if one was in favor of, of keeping Europe together, which we are, of course. And that is one, 
Germany also has to pay for a public good and for the EU that sometimes, you know, being the leader comes with extra cost. And Germans are very pro-European, right? at least their tendency is so, but they're not when it comes to Eurobonds. So it has to be something else. And the other one is geopolitical. And that's something that, that we forget. Um, in the last crisis, in the Euro crisis, there was a quite a bit of strategic infrastructure and strategic ports, the Portuguese electricity grid that was bought up by, by outside powers, in this case China, and that have hampered the EU's uh, capacity to act afterwards. And this is something that we should point Germans to now, is that you can't leave a vacuum and you need to, it's in your own interest, as Guntram was saying, to help and to put some money on the table. So Guntam, you were saying you think that there is a possible compromise going forwards. When I was talking to people in the German foreign ministry, they're sort of hoping that one could develop some new financial instrument that doesn't look like it's about mutualizing debt, but is instead about reform and recovery. So that it would be sort of linked to the future European economy, you know, the Green Deal and digital and stuff like that. And you could have some sort of loose conditionality around retooling economies for the future and that that might be able to to get around some of the, the aversion to debt mutualization, which is surprisingly strong even in the SPD. I mean, the fact that the CDUs against it isn't such a big surprise, but Rolf Mutzenisch has been out on the radio talking about how um, no mutualization of debt is, is possible. And the, the Green Party, which seems to be the only party supporting corona bonds, uh, has not benefited in the opinion polls as a result of that. So, uh, Guntam, do you think it is possible to, to find some kind of solution like that? Well, I mean, giving political forecasts is always a difficult job, right? I, I think as an economist, the first point I would certainly make is that the mutualization is and will already indirectly happen in the balance sheet of the ECB. And that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. There's no risk for inflation here. On the contrary, we are actually seeing deflationary tendencies. So this is happening. And the question is how it, how it is happening. Is it happening by the ECB buying national debt? Or is it happening uh, via some sort of a special purpose vehicle or some sort of an instrument where the, the fiscal authorities of the member states agree to sort of share uh, the burden so that the ECB can buy that debt? Now, I agree that the term uh, Corona bond or Euro bond is very controversial, just as much as uh, ESM conditionality is very controversial in the South. So as always, there has to be some sort of a compromise in between. And I think the French uh, finance minister has proposed already something like a rescue fund, uh, which would be, I think, very much along the lines of what your contact in the foreign ministry uh, in Germany is suggesting, namely some sort of a fund which is targeted, uh, especially at the recovery, at, one can call it a recovery. I called it a COVID-19 recovery plan for the uh, for the Eurozone in an, in an opinion piece in the Financial Times. I think you can call it a Marshall plan or something like this and, you know, use it really for the recovery phase in particular. Um, which will require a lot of money and which will require also targeted money so as to uh, pursue certain goals that we as a union want to pursue. And these goals should be European public goods, right? I mean, health is a European public good, climate, greening of our economy, but also digitalization in all of these areas. I can very much see easily a compromise happening. In the end, the question is how big is the whole thing going to be? And, you know, I think we need um, something that's very substantial. I 
my my ballpark number that I would love to see is is really uh, a trillion euros because currently uh, GDP is in free fall. Every week costs us at least a percentage point of GDP or something like this. So uh, we are really for uh, perhaps a 10% decline in GDP. And so it requires really a massive fiscal response. And that's going to be difficult to get the one trillion. But, you know, if we get 500 billion, uh, it would already be huge. And how would you get your one trillion then? Where would it come from? I think you have to borrow it in the markets. I mean, this the whole point has to be that you borrow the money in the market and then you pay it out to the countries of the EU, of the Eurozone in particular. And of course, there always has to be someone paying the interest. And I think that needs to be according to capital keys across the Eurozone. But uh, you don't want this debt to be uh, converted into national debt anytime soon. Let that be uh, sitting on the balance sheet of the ECB and let it be European debt really for quite a, quite a period of time and let it be dedicated to only the coronavirus. So I think it's in terms of messaging, it's extremely important not to say that this is now the start of a Eurozone fiscal union with a political union, because that's exactly what the Dutch and the Germans don't want. But something that is specific for this purpose to get the recovery done like a Marshall Plan after World War II seems to be reasonable and I think is ultimately politically um, going to work because because the cost is there anyway, and the ECB will mutualize it anyway. So one of the other things which which they were talking about in, in this Zoom call between different European leaders at the European Council was um, un- European unemployment assurance, which is a kind of old chestnut, which um, often gets brought up in these topics. But that's one of the things that Pedro Sanchez was calling for, isn't it, Nacho? There are various things. I think one of the things that we should avoid looking at how things worked in the past when they worked well and when they worked bad is that we should avoid funds uh, having names of countries. That is, um, that if it's money for Spain, that is money for Italy, uh, then it's going to go wrong. I think, you know, the program should be devised in a way in which everyone meeting some criteria uh, could benefit from them. So Europe should rescue workers by helping, you know, member states or national services of uh, employment to, 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 to cope with uh, an expected surge of uh, employment rates. It should help SMEs. It should help um, maybe large companies who are on hibernation for a while. And so there would be, you know, there should be wide access to uh, to funds out of the EU budget, but also other instruments in a way in which it's money for those who meet some criteria because they've been hit by the crisis. And that's fair and objective and quantifiable. And then, of course, the states are going to be the, the, you know, the ones reimbursing this money that has been borrowed and so on. But I think it's very important, like what, what we did in the past with cohesion funds, for example, they were not targeted at one country. They were targeted at countries which were under 90% of EU GDP. You know, if we, even if we broke down um, these funds by region, you know, and, and it would be regions in the EU which would be qualifying for these funds, it would be even better because we know that there are more vulnerable and poorer regions in every member state and, and so on. And so in that case, you know, you would build a sense of ownership. You would build a sense of Europeanness. So, um, so I think, you know, the political presentation of all of this should not lead us to go back into the mistakes that we made in the, in the past crisis when this crisis is absolutely uh, different. And even on the name of it, I, th- I know it was Sanchez that was proposing the Marshall Plan. I thought it was a pretty bad name for because it's about us and rescuing us and not about external 
someone, you know, coming to, to rescue us. Even in the strategic terms, I think my, my idea would have been to call this Adenauer reconstruction funds. You know, this would be much better or to have a plan Monet or, or something like that. But I think it's very important that all these schemes, you know, when you talk about an European unemployment scheme, um, yes, it's not a wait for the countries of the rest of Europe to fund Spanish workers who are unemployed, but to try and have this mechanism to be applied to, to all Europeans if and when they're hit by corona in a way which we can identify and then act upon. So what do you three things going to happen to EU unity as this kind of goes on? Because even if there is some sort of compromise around a, a new instrument, a COVID recovery plan, the divisions which have come out now could only get deeper. I mean, there'll be big divisions which emerge between the Eurozone and the non-Eurozone already as a result of what the ECB is doing. You know, the, the position of non-Eurozone countries is going to be quite different from, from Eurozone countries. But also, you know, if you create more fiscal room for countries to spend their their way out of the immediate crisis, as Guntram was saying, it's a lot easier for Germany to use the room that you get out of relaxation of the, room, of the rules than it is for for Spain or for for Italy. It'd be interesting to hear from all of you. What's the future shape of the European economy going to look like in a couple of years' time? If uh, even if we do get some kind of shorter term compromise on new instruments, Guntram, do you want to go first on that? Sure. Well, I mean, two quick points. I think the first point is I think um, the the feelings and disappointment is very real. And I think the Italian disappointment in particular, but probably also the Spanish is, is very big. And so I, politically, this can have lasting consequences. And that's why it is actually very important that we do something. Uh, and perhaps my second point is um, in terms of the future of the industry, um, I actually worry because um, our industry has been in structural decline for quite some time. We haven't managed to digitalize as much as we should have. And now our old industries um, is really uh, heavily hit by this crisis. I mean, be that the industrial structures, the car industry and so on, but also be it tourism in Spain. I mean, these things, I think, will for quite a period of time uh, really suffer. And so I think it is indeed time for a COVID recovery plan that really tries to put forward a new strategy and really sort of boosts our economy, but not just indiscriminatorily, but really targeted to the future and not to the past. Let me let me add maybe what's interesting is that you know before the crisis we were we, we kept saying that there was no sense of urgency felt in in Germany and and oftentimes in in other European countries uh, people and and decision makers are feeling that you know we're we're already feeling that something needs to be done uh, both in terms of economic reform and preparing our economies for the 21st century but also uh, geopolitically and and in in all kinds of areas and what's interesting right now is that. That has not changed, even even though we were experiencing a profound crisis, because for now, at least, people in Germany are quite confident that they'll come out of the crisis quite well. The number of deaths are fairly low. And what we're seeing is that that might change when, you know, if, if the crisis hits Germany much harder, and it will in any case, economically speaking. And how do you see it, Nacho? There is one thing we still don't know, which is to which extent countries other than especially France, Italy, and Spain, are out of the woods before having even entered them. Either because their social distancing has allowed them to have a slower spread of the contagion, 
or because they think that their health system is more efficient because they're doing testing. Uh, I think this is still unfound and unproven. Uh, Spain and Italy are not in the woods because, because their health systems were in bad shape. It's true that they didn't do or they haven't been doing you know, the, the tests in the scale that others were doing, but probably... So, so my, my point here is that at the, at the moment, this looks like an asymmetric shock that uh, it's so unfortunately hitting countries, which to start with, they have a bad uh, fiscal reputation. Uh, maybe this stays as such. And I think if it stays as such, it would be bad for Europe as a whole, because this asymmetric shock would be attributed to kind of cultural issues, but also efficiency issues and also lack of space fiscal space and like of proper behavior issues. So it will reinforce uh, existing prejudices and will make us weaker and will lead to the rise of uh, Euroscepticism even more in Italy and to the surge of it at the beginning of it in a serious way in, in Spain, probably also in France in, in more even more deeper ways. So um, if this is wrong and we go through and we, we, we end up in a symmetric shock in which uh, the fact that um, uh, Germany and other countries have a slower rate of contagion is just because they're taking some measures, but ultimately they're not going to be able to prevent this because everyone is going to get infected and everyone who is over 80, which is in, your, in all countries is, is a large number of population, are going to suffer and no emergency rooms in any country are prepared to receive you know, what we are seeing then, you know, Europe will be transformed because we will discover that interdependencies both now and at the moment of the recovery have to be tackled in a coordinated way. So I think the jury is still very much open, but I very clearly see two scenarios which are dramatically different depending on whether the shock is symmetric or asymmetric. Okay, well, I think we're going to have to keep an eye on it and we can come back at various different stages. I'm not sure that we're going to know for a long time. I suspect that there'll be quite asymmetrical periods as we are in at the moment, not just during the disease, but also in the recovery afterwards. But it's been really fascinating to talk to the three of you. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Guntram, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? El amor en los tiempos del cólera. Love in the time of cólera. Ah, excellent. Nacho, what's on your bookshelf? Are you reading a German book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course, you know. <laughs> Thomas Mann. Magic Mountain, yeah, of course. Yeah, of course, you know. <laughs> what else? <laughs> That's how Europe was built. <laughs> no, 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 you know, I'm, uh, everyone else uh, overwhelmed with reading Imperial War College uh, scenarios <laughs> uh, which uh you know yesterday came out saying that spain had a probability of 95 percent of having between one and seven million people infected so uh how statistics work in these cases it reminded me of when at the time of the financial crisis there were estimations that said spain would need between 10 billion and 200 billion euros you know so <laughs> we're pretty much lost here in the statistics Jonathan, what's on your bookshelf at the moment I have a book on my desk in any case. I'm also overwhelmed with reading current stuff. But for the Easter break, I, I'll be reading Radical Uncertainty, uh, Decision-Making for an Unknowable Future by John Kay and Mervyn King. Fantastic. Well, I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you have, please feel free to let other people know about it by giving us a review or a rating on whatever platform you've used to download this podcast on. 
Uh, we'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Guntram Wolf, Jose Ignacio Torreblanca, Jonathan Hachenbrosch, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lera Borokanikova, and our editor is Marta Zaletti. Mm-hmm.